I have been single for a very long time, but I also don't want children. So um, cats is enough for me. Mm-hmm. And even then, they don't live with me. <laughs> I'm like a half-assed dad. But seriously, you've left them with your mum? Yeah, I couldn't take them to London. Well, you could. I'm, I'm sure uh, cats nah. exist in London. No, they do. But like, cause they, like, here, they've got like fields and pastures of green, and they can run around and be free. Whereas if they were in London, I was just worried that someone would like either a steal them, b be really mean to them, or um, uh, they would get run over or something. So yeah. uh, the the kindest thing for me to do was it, to leave them here. Hence why I'm here at the moment because Mum's in Scotland, so I'm here. I'm oh, here being okay. a uh, being a proper dad, looking after the boys. So you got visitation rights. This I is have, your yeah. With the boys. Although they look at me like I'm a piece of shit every time I walk in the door. Oh, so you've returned, have you, motherfucker? That's just cats. That happens to yeah. me every time I come home from work and True. I've only been gone eight <laughs> hours. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... <clears throat> Are you ready? Absolutely. And willing. I need, I need to get consent before I start these things. <laughs> yes, mm. please talk to me. Fantastic. So, this story takes place in the run-up to the Georgian era. So we're in the latter half of the 17th century here. And it Lovely. also, controversially, doesn't take place in Britain. It takes place in the Holy Roman Empire. Dun, yeah. dun, dun. Because Germany wasn't a thing yet. They hadn't got round to officially, you know, bringing the band no, together. We hadn't had uh, Bismarck. Oh, no. I love Bismarck so hard. His tash is just friggin' amazing. It, it is a good moustache. Just his fashion sense, mm. everything about him. But the thing, Just fabulous. The best thing was, he got... He's probably the only politician I know of in history who had a plan. And then when he got all the things he wanted, he went, right, I've got a unified Germany. Just went, that's it. I don't want any more. I'm not going to expand. I'm just going to manage what I have really well. I like I like uh, that I in mean, my it, politicians. It, it worked. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. it might have created something sinister later on, but it worked. Oh, I, I am of the opinion if he'd have lived forever, everything would still be fine. We wouldn't have a world war. The concept of a world war just wouldn't exist because he'd keep putting fires out just to keep his Germany all nice and safe and tucked up in bed. Hmm. Don't touch my Germany. Yeah. Do whatever you want outside so long as it's not going to bother my nice little Germany that I've got here. Okay. Step away from Deutschland. <laughs> so, George William and Ernest Augustus were respectively the second and fourth sons of the Duke of brunswick Lüneburg. Without the stress of being the direct heir to their father's estates, the two brothers were free to indulge themselves as only the sons of nobles can do. There was a brother in between them, but he, from what I can find out, was a bit of a buzzkill, and they didn't like to hang I around thought, with him. I thought you were going to say he just, he's just not important. Well, he's, he, Scrap him. To this story, he's not, except he gets a bit pissy when he's not being given free land at some point. But other than that, he's just in irrelevance. Mm. Specifically, though, George and Ernest, the cool brothers, they like to spend their time in Italy where they could enjoy a triptych of delights made up of drinking, ladies, specifically ladies of the night, and gambling. Okay, so I like two of those things. Drinking and gambling? Guess again. No, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I love ladies of the night for a conversation. Um, Mm. Because you do pay for the time. I remember there was a a thingy-bob, a show about the red light district, and I wonder where you were going then. And <laughs> I remember this one time that I was in Italy. Go on. Well, they were talking about uh, how it works and that technically you're not paying to have sexual intercourse with anyone, that it's not prostitution per se. You're paying to spend time in a room. So you're, it's almost like a hotel and there just happens to be a woman there. Uh, and then what you do is your own. Yeah, and there was this British squad and um, he got there and he obviously thought, I'm going to go down to one of these red light rooms Mm. and i'm gonna uh pay this woman and he promptly fell asleep and when (laughs) he woke up he tried to leave without paying and she called the police and he was thinking well the police are going to be on my side 
and they forced him to pay her. So it was the most expensive hour and a half kip he'd ever had. Oh, you don't want to pay for a nap. But to be honest, you know, you've got to know the rules before you play the game. Otherwise, you are going to get caught out like this. True. Mm. Anyway, of the two brothers who enjoyed Ladies of the Night, uh, George William was by far the more impulsive and the more hedonistic. He was so impulsive, in fact, that he was soon very deep in debt. Like, and syphilis. Well, we'll get on to that. But... <laughs> Have I just ruined the story? The end's done. <laughs> no, I, I don't know if it's syphilis. There are questions around STDs, but at the moment mm. he's just balls deep in debt. Nothing else. Um, <laughs> but as he was from the upper class, from the upper crust, he didn't need to worry about that too much as mm. all he had to do was ask for an increase in his allowance because he owned Loomberg, essentially. He was in charge of running Loomberg and he could ask the, the sort of mayor and the surrounding sort of, you know, justices if they wouldn't mind raising the taxes so that he could have a bit more spending money. Um, yeah. They said no. Could you believe? We will not spend our hard-earned money on Ladies of the Evening. For you. Uh, for yourself. But they did add a caveat. They, they they didn't want to just shut down this young noble because they felt that, you know, he'd come good in the end. And they said, look, we're not going to give you a tax increase now, but if you can prove to us that you're going to be a bit more moderate, that you're going to maybe learn to manage your money a bit, then we'll we'll look at it again. Okay, so go off, have a word with yourself, <laughs> sort yourself out, come back to us and show us that you're ready to be a mature adult man and we'll, we'll, we'll look at it again. Fair. Yeah, well, I thought it was quite a fair... You know, I mean, mm-hmm. if it was me... They're I'm not gonna... saying no 100%, are they? They're just oh, saying, no. look, kind of... Just rein it in a little bit. Yeah, they're, they're being very... Rather than go, right, revolution, re- revolution, revolution over that? Yep, yep. Okay, we're going to chop your head off. They've gone, no, no, no. Come on, we'll meet you halfway. A little bit of whoring. Maybe <laughs> just a couple of hands of poker. And maybe not go all the way to Venice to do it. You could... We have a poker table here. <laughs> we don't need to pay your travel anymore, do we? But rather than genuinely make an effort to become respectable... George William decided he could just pretend by getting himself a wife. Because wife equals respectability, as all good US politicians know. (laughs) But not only was he taking the laziest route, he was trying to do it in the laziest possible way. Because he didn't want to go out and actually find a woman. Uh, So he decided it'd be easiest to just propose to the pen pal of his little brother. A lady by the name of Sophia of the Platinate. That's a funny name. So what does that mean? Well, it's just where she was from. Um, So Sophia, this little Sophia, who was pen pals with Ernest, his little brother, um, Mm. she was the niece of Charles I. Oh, okay. Her mum was the Winter Queen of Bohemia. Is that that her official title? Well, um, her, her husband became King of Bohemia... And everybody kind of joked that he would be the winter king of Bohemia because as soon as campaign season started again the next year, he was going to be deposed. Oh, and it, and it turned out that that's exactly what happened. So they that's were, a cool name. Yeah, they were forever referred to as the winter winter king and queen of Bohemia. But I want to be the winter queen of Bohemia. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's a cool title and you don't actually have to do any ruling. So her daughter, Sophia, happened to like playing guitar with Ernest and they they would send each other little musical notations to try as pen pals and you know George just thought sod it I've already got her address because my brother writes to her um so I'll just write a letter saying do you fancy marrying me so that's good isn't it (laughs) I've just got this really weird vision in my head dear person please marry me good day it was essentially, dear girl I used to meet when you were mess- messing about on a guitar with my brother. Want to be wife? Question mark. <laughs> See me. But he was in luck because at the moment that he wrote that letter, Sophia was living with her brother and her brother's wife. And her brother's wife didn't really like Sophia. 
to the point where she started spreading gossip around the, the, the court that Sophia and her brother were having an incestuous relationship. <sighs> mm. So, yeah, Sophia, she was, she was used to being unwanted, um, you know, what with the whole Winter King and Queen thing and having to run away from Bohemia. And having to I, know, I know the feeling, Sophia. Yeah. So she was she was just happy at the offer of what she saw as here's a stable home life. Marry me, you can have a house that you can run, a household. And I'm probably not gonna be there very often, so That's the dream actually, isn't it? Yeah, you can do whatever the heck you want. You can get into mm. horticulture, you can collect small ceramic dogs, whatever you want. <laughs> small ceramic dogs. You know they're worth a fortune now. Oh god, the, the mm. worst hat is worth the most money. That's what I find. Mm. I say that with a Wedgwood corgi looking at me from our knickknack cupboard right now. It wasn't mine. <laughs> blame, blame the wife. So having got himself a fiance, George went back to ask for the funds again, but he didn't tell them immediately that he got Sophia as his nearly wife. Because he wanted that to be his trump card that he'd play. Just to, you know, just to sweeten the deal, just to get him over the line. Fair, yeah. Rather awkwardly, though, this time they gave him the money straight away. Uh, asking any more questions. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Right. George suddenly realised he didn't need Sophia. And he immediately oh. tried to find a way to get rid of her. Because, of course, he's, he's contractually obligated now. He's asked her. Get rid of her, as in, like, sack her off? Or yeah, just no, like... no, he's not going to kill her. He just wants, oh, right. wants her to go away now because he doesn't need a wife. We're done here, woman. Good day. Yeah, you were my way of getting more money, and now I have the money. You see where you don't fit in this anymore? <laughs> um, his solution, glorious. He went to his younger brother, Ernest and asked if he wouldn't mind taking Sophia off his hands. To sweeten the deal, he also offered his little brother the entire Duchy of Lundberg as a thank you. I mean, I probably would for that as well. Well, Ernest, he thought his brother was insane at that offer, giving up so much just to avoid what was a pretty good marriage status-wise, because although, yes, you know she had had to run away from Bohemia. This was still the niece of a British king. Mm. And this is still a member of the British royal family. And Ernest, he couldn't believe his luck. But the one thing about Ernest was he had big plans and he thought, do you know what, I can get a little bit more out of this. I'm going to add an extra stipulation to this deal and see if, if George will go for it. And Ernest said, look, I'll agree to marry Sophia, I'll take her off your hands, but only if George makes an oath that he would never ask another woman to marry him and he would never have kids, as this would ensure that Ernest's own kids wouldn't be challenged over the land that George was giving away. So it's to kind of shore up what he was being gifted and make sure that it was generational. So he was a shrewd businessman, was Ernest. Smart move. Oh, yeah. Smart move. The brothers shook hands on the deal, though. And then, and only then, they went to tell Sophia about the slight change to the engagement plans. Slight change. Here's a whole new person that you're going to marry. That was, she was only the niece of a king of England. You know, uh, <laughs> do you really need to keep re involved in every little decision about the wedding? Uh, by the way, you're marrying my brother, not me. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> you, just, you just feed it in. You're like, oh, by the way, they didn't have lilies. Uh, so we're, <laughs> we're not going to be able to have them in the place settings. Um Ivory, we've gone for the place cards, and also you're marrying my brother. Um, mm, did we did we talk about whether whether we needed two hundred or three hundred white doves? Oh, oh yes, you married my brother. Yeah, sorry, yeah. <laughs> but luckily, Sophia, she was quite pragmatic about the whole thing and figured Ernest was the one she knew better anyway from all the, you know, guitar sessions. Um, mm, he fair. seemed to be the more sensible brother because he was the one amassing land and influence. And at least she wouldn't have to deal with a husband with a reputation for womanising and spending tons of money he didn't have. Yeah, you don't want that, do you? It's just going to be disastrous later down the line. So Ernest and Sophia married on September 30th, 1658. As expected, George went back to his party and lifestyle, while Ernest and Sophia had their first son just over a year later on May 28th, 1660. 
They called him George Louise. Possibly. Louise? Louise. Oh. Or it might be George Louis. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably George Louis, isn't it? Yeah, probably. But no, do you, Joe. You say it however you want to say it. He was George Louis Louise. Uh, and that was possibly in honour of his uncle, who had bequeathed him, let's face it, quite a tidy um, bump on his inheritance, mm. all told. Unfortunately, it turned out that the womanising, drinking and gambling, Elder George, was also someone who couldn't be trusted to keep his word. Hmm. I, I heard your shock there. Yeah. But maybe you, you couldn't actually rely on this guy to do what he said he was going to do. What an actual liar. Well, he fell for a French woman named Eleanor, who, understandably, had been teaching him French. (laughs) Bonsoir. Uh, By rank, she was below George's station, as she was at the best a very minor noble from France. But George didn't care. He was head over heels in love. And this is... He was genuinely bowled over Cupid's arrow... For for now, until the next one comes along, nope. I'm sure. Nope, this was it. Eleanor was his one. It had taken him a while one. and a lot of research to find her. <laughs> he had found a lot of try out. before you buy. Yeah, this was, he, he knew what he needed. Frustratingly for George, though, Eleanor refused to go to bed with him without assurances that he would legitimise their relationship. Okay, this, smart, smart. George in a bind, though, because he promised his brother he would never get married what to do he decided though he couldn't offer a marriage what he could do was enter into a legally binding contract where he would be expected to provide her with an allowance of 2,000 crowns a year as well as promising to take no more women to bed Eleanor would also receive the official title of Lady Harburg but this was not a marriage but I was going to say like the promise, like, mm. how legal can that be? Like, I can promise things. Uh, as in, signed, sealed, delivered with a lawyer. He's promised that he will pay her an annuity of £2,000. Uh, £2, so then, if he goes against his word, then she will sue. he'll owe her money. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's not, it's not a marriage, it's just a legally binding contract between a man and a woman. Like a civil partnership, almost. Like a marriage, if we're being honest. Basically, mistresses were a legitimate thing in the um, Holy Roman uh, Empire at the time. And he was offering to make her an official mistress. Not a wife, just an official mistress. Which came Uh, with a title. Yeah. I like it. His, you know, his side piece is getting the title Lady Harburg. As it was a marriage in all but name, though, Ernest was understandably a little bit annoyed. He's like, what you've done there, mate, is you found a loophole. Not really kept true to the um, spirit of our agreement, I'd say. Mm, yeah. <laughs> what um, a knob. But he was consoled by his wife, Sophia, who said that even with a nearly wife, it would be impossible for George to have children due to his long history and well-documented history of venereal disease. No. So, to be honest, his, his downstairs business is all messed up. There is no way... <laughs> He could sire a child, so it's um, just full of crust. Yeah, it's what's coming out is it's non-viable, and that's putting it kindly. So let him have his mistress. Let's just move on. We've got our son to think about. We've got more kids on the way. We're the ones building a dynasty. And she 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 fun. seems quite sensible as well, doesn't she? The brother's wife. However. As oh, Jurassic okay. Park taught us in 1990, <laughs> life finds a way. And on September 15th, 1666, as as London was still smouldering across yeah. the English Channel, Burning. Yeah. Um, Eleanor gave birth to a little girl who was named Sophia Dorothea. That definitely can't be his kid, surely. It, whether it was or not, it, it, they could they didn't have DNA testing, so... As far as everyone was concerned, that was Sophia Dorothea was George's kid. Mm. So, to make up for breaking now both elements of his oath, George gave away even more land to his little brother. And this is where the third brother, whose name I don't even remember, he's that inconsequential to the story, got a bit <laughs> pissy. Like, why well, you... to be fair, I would be as well. Why are you giving all this land to Ernest? I want some land. It's like, well, you didn't marry a woman for me, did you? 
So <laughs> marry, marry another one. Yeah. Go. <laughs> if I ever need someone else marrying, I'll come to you. But at the moment, you're not really that much use to me, are you? I'm going to just call him Enos. The third brother, Enos. Who no one Enos remembers. Enos the penis. Enos with no penis. <laughs> Enos the eunuch. Oh. The... <laughs> Oh, what a deformed family, bless Lovely them. Lovely singing voice, though. You you wait. Deformed family? <laughs> you need inbreeding for that. Hold on. To make up for breaking both elements of his oath, he gave away more land to his brother, eventually retaining only the Duchy of Sel for himself and his little family. Having minimal responsibilities and in a genuine and loving relationship, George quickly matured. With the support of Eleanor, who turned out to be a great businesswoman, he began turning Sel into an idyllic place to live, improving his finances and, in the process, using those funds to invest in profitable lands and businesses. Oh, okay. So he's turning it around now. He's gone small. He's gone bijou. He's gone artisanal. He's reinvented himself. Yeah, in his little duchy of Sel. Ernest, meanwhile, had decided his own son would inherit not only the massive estate he had pieced together but he also wanted him to have the title of Elector in the Holy Roman Empire. Well, that's big. Oh, that's big. And I'll explain to you why, provided you don't already know. I don't know. Please. Fantastic. Okay, I will explain to you for why. Because unlike most absolute monarchies in Europe at the time, the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, or the HRE, as I'm going to keep referring to it now because it took too long to write, uh, was an elected position. This decision was made by the eight electors, either just before or just after the death of the previous emperor, which is a very good way of running what is still essentially, you know, an absolute monarchy, because these eight elector families are all interrelated. It's like a big extended family, but it means that if you have somebody born to the emperor who's quite clearly um, not emperor material, let's say... You, know, you can vote them out. Well, you just don't vote them in because as soon as that emperor dies, the kids don't have a right to become emperor. It's right back to the electors. Let's vote for who amongst us is best suited to the job. Well, but if it was a tie. Well, that's what I thought about the eight. And maybe that's one of the things that Ernest was using. He's like, really, you need an odd number for this, don't you guys? Cause mm, yeah, that's what I was thinking. 4v4, mm, it's not really going to work, is it? Then we're mm. all at war. 4v4, all at war. Game of Thrones, yeah. part one. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, this it, I think it's a great way, if you are going to have a monarchy, which I don't agree with, I think it's a great way of making sure that you don't end up with somebody who's going to go insane. Yeah, I think that's fair. I do apologise. If you can hear a meowing in the background, it's my cat, and I'm trying to get rid of it. No, that's slightly. It's only going to make him meow more. It's fine. Ambient cat noise is part of the... Part of the consistently eccentric way i've got four of them true but i mean you you know it, it worked because you never heard of an insane holy roman emperor yet you'd know there were insane kings of france and england yes so the system worked and Ernest believed that if he could make his new super duchy of hanover big enough and could garner enough support from the other big families in the hre that the emperor would eventually grant him the title of the ninth elector a title he could then pass to his son with the hope that his descendants would eventually contain an emperor within their ranks. So he's playing the long game, Ernest. That is a very long game, and a lot can happen between but that's, now and then. It's the difference between the two brothers. You know, George is making a nice life for himself now. Whereas that's Ernest, what I would do, to be fair. Well, it really was a case of, um, you know, not being able to enjoy anything for Ernest, because in order to sort of by favour with the emperor and to sort things out and to politic his way towards this electorate that he wanted. He needed to constantly shower the other ruling families with gifts, provide military support to the emperor almost constantly, at massive personal cost, and run his court in Hamburg as a model of formality and decorum. Hamburg is very nice. I've been there. It's very lovely. Um, As a result, the Duchy of Hanover became a very formal place filled with ambitious courtiers, constantly manoeuvring to gain political power and influence over the potential future elector. In contrast, George's small court in Cell was a place of happiness and festivities with no desire 
to increase their influence. I want to be there. Yeah. If I could choose the one of the two, I would be in happy, yeah. lovely town. Where they had regular feasts and balls, where everyone just had a good time and put the feet up. And their daughter, Sophia, grew up in this idyllic setting with two parents who showered her with love and affection and clearly loved each other deeply. Mm. As she was technically not legitimate, there were no plans for Sophia to be married off strategically. All her mother wished for was a marriage that would provide the same safety, security and love that she herself had found with George. Aww. It just sounds so lovely, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Yeah. Too too lovely, though. Something's going to happen. Foreshadowing. Eleanor eventually arranged a match for Sophia Dorothea with a dashing young soldier who also happened to be the son of the Duke of Wolfenbuttel. I love it. Yeah. And his name... Did he have, I hope he had a tash, like a really big one. I, I assume it was like a handlebar moustache, as only the Germans oh, can do, that sort of comes down to a sideburn, into a, lamb, a mutton chop, like the full... It's like the dream. Well, his name was Augustus Frederick. Of course it was. Very, very... He was military man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the only wrinkle in the plan, though, seemed to be that Sophia would need to be legitimised before the marriage could go ahead. So George finally officially married Eleanor in 1676. So now he's definitely broken all of the code. Yeah. But it was all right because he was doing it for his daughter and Sophia Dorothea, although she was only 10 years old at the time, could rest assured that she would enjoy a happy life married to the son of a duke as soon as she turned 16 and he got back from his latest military campaign. So this was more of a promise of a marriage when she came of age than it was a a child bride situation. Okay, which was quite common back in the day Uh, because people lived less. Well, we're getting further down the line. I mean, we're in the 1700s now, so your average life expectancy was pushing 50. I mean, in more enlightened parts of the world, 50. Come on. I mean, that's insane, isn't it? To have. Come on. You don't need to get married at 10 if you're going to live to 50. You can at least wait until 16. And they were going to... Yeah. But it was, Fair. It was Fair. set in stone. It was she was going to become Sophia Wolfenbuttel. Great name. I'm going to change my name now. Oliver Wolfenbuttel. Yeah. It works. I mean that. I could have co meaning. Well, unfortunately, and very sadly, Sophia Wolfenbuttel. That was never going to be a thing because on August ninth, sixteen seventy six, Augustus Frederick, while fighting at the Siege of Philipsburg, was hit in the face with a cannonball. Ah, but that would well (laughs) Wouldn't it just? So, you know, just him, full face, cannonball, and amazingly, it's reported that he didn't die instantly, but shortly (laughs) after. In what you can only assume is the most horrific pain. I shall not die by this cannonball. For 12 minutes. <laughs> Actually, it'd probably be better if he did just well, die straight away. If, if you're telling me I'm going to die via cannonball to the face, you better follow that up with instantaneously. I mean, almost like... I, I really want to die in a really weird, um, like, historical way. So something that would never really happen these days. So cannonball to the face. That would be pretty good. I mean, that would be quite... I, I, I mean, I'd be up for that. See, you want to be clean-shaven because the problem was... His glorious moustache actually took some of the force out of the cannonball, just enough so that it wasn't an instant kill. Oh. So really, you want to be clean-shaven just to make sure that... The no one wants to see me clean-shaven. <laughs> I'm hiding a weak chin. So he's dead. No marriage. Which, yeah, it leaves Sophia Dorothea. But at least Eleanor's married, so she got what she wanted out of the deal, because she now gets to call herself a duchess, which is cool. Meanwhile, over in Hanover, Ernest was feeling the pressure of trying to build a dynasty and, as was completely acceptable at the time, he sought to ease the tension by taking himself a mistress. A mistress called Clara. Now, Clara was beautiful. She was 18 years younger than Ernest's wife, Sophia. and She was a ruthless hustler who was looking to amass power and money however she could. Because she managed to not only become Ernest's mistress, but also... She married the Prime Minister of Hamburg. What? So she had two of these really high-status gents. The Prime Minister knew that she was also um, Ernest's side piece, but he was like, it's good for business. 
I'm getting, I'm never going to be fired. Here, have my wife. Yeah, that was pretty much it. It was like, this, is, this works for all of us. Um, and for good measure, she also ensured that her sister Catherine, her younger sister, became the mistress of Ernest's son, and her, George Louis Louise. Um, <laughs> Clara liked... This is so interbred. Yeah. Clara liked Ernest's power and influence, but she decided she would also like a bit of George's wealth. And this is the older George, because in Cell, they're just making money hand over fist because they're not trying to impress anyone. They're not sending out armies to fight. No, they're just just living a nice life for themselves. Cell's the party town. But Clara, she saw a way that she could have both Ernest's influence and George's wealth. What? Hold on. Okay, right. Okay, I've got it. Go on. No, I just... Okay, so, yeah, that's fine. No, I was just working out who was who in my head. Right, okay. Yeah, this was the one that I was writing and I actually had a family tree out in front of me the entire time to try and keep it straight. Yeah. So she decided that the best course of action would be to unite the brothers via marriage. And she sold it to um, Ernest by saying, that means that, you know, your son will have control of all of the estates, including Cell, and all of the money, and that will really sell the idea of you becoming an elector. In this case, the marriage of their children was, unfortunately, uh, a marriage of first cousins. Oh. So she's essentially suggesting that, you know, your, your son, why doesn't he marry your brother's daughter? And that'll sort everything out. Uh, that, if it... Okay. Keep right, it that in the is... family. Well, it is really, really bizarre. But, like, the Queen mm. was related to Prince Philip. Mm. So, even to this day, it happened. Yes. It's really bizarre, but it did happen. Yeah, but first cousins, I mean, that's a bit <sighs> on the nose, isn't it? Well, the thing is, I mean, any any relation is a bit bizarre, is it not? Mm. Even if it's distant. As far as incestuous marriages go, this one was even more dramatic because there was a clock on it. Because Sophia Dorothea would only be available until the dawning of her 16th birthday, as it was planned that she would accept the proposal of another son of the Duke of Wolfsenbuttel. Oh, what? Because he had more than one son, and he made sure that They're all going to get Habsburg's jaw, is that what it was called? Yeah, the Habsburg chin. Yeah, that's it. But the Duke of Wolfsenbuttel, he's like, I have another son, and I promise you... Until she turns 16, I will keep him away from Cannon. Just miles away. We won't have one in the house. I can guarantee this one's going to survive. There'll be no Cannon to the face. Yeah, to actually get married. So, on the eve of her birthday, this is literally the night before her birthday. God, they're pushing it, aren't they? Sophia Dorothea's aunt Sophia, so the mother of little George, Louis, 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 rode into cell to talk to George the Elder about the prospect of their two children getting hitched. She mentioned the plans for the family to become an elector and didn't correct George when he assumed that as the eldest brother, he would go first with the new title. So she, she kind of didn't lie to him, but didn't correct him when he thought he mm. was going to become an elector. And he went... Didn't tell him the whole truth. Yeah, and George didn't bother to consult with his wife or daughter before agreeing to the proposal. So his daughter... By the way, you're marrying your cousin. Well, at the moment, Sophia Dorothea went to bed at 15 years and 364 days, knowing that the next morning she was going to be visited by the Duke of Wolfensbuttel and his handsome son, who was going to propose marriage. And she was, was he handsome? Yes. More handsome than George. Definitely. And also, yeah. because they knew they were going to get hitched, there'd been correspondence... They got to know uh, each other. They quite liked each other. Yes. Mm. It's, yeah, sending each other little little ditties. Yeah. In, in the event, though, Sophia Dorothea woke up on her 16th birthday to the worst present imaginable. <laughs> because she had, of course, met her cousin. So she knew him to be... Well, they had the same grandparents, yeah. didn't they? Of course she did. At family functions. And she knew him to be a dull, <laughs> misogynistic idiot. Her first reaction to the news that she was now expected to wed him was to scream, I will not marry the pig snout! That's a, that's a comeback that we need to... Uh, sorry, an insult, yeah, yeah, that we need to bring back. What a pig snout. Well, she called him... I'm sure that that was the sort of um, edited version. <laughs> the polite version. Yeah. 
Uh, she was not the only person to refer to pigs when describing George Louis Louis Louis. Even his own mother, Sophia, described him as, and this is a direct quote from the guy's mother, the most pig-headed, stubborn boy who ever lived, and who has round his brains such a thick crust that I defy any man or woman to ever discover what is in them. Well, you wouldn't hear that on Blind Date, would you? Scylla would not be impressed with that news. That's his mum. Uh, you know, that's yeah. his mum describing him going, well, he's a pig-headed idiot. But he's my son. <laughs> so marry him. Hmm. Well, George apparently wasn't too keen on the marriage either, but he was interested in the massive dowry that came with it. He travelled to meet his new fiance. Uh, and Sophia responded by immediately pretending to faint so that she didn't have to talk to him. I love it. I like her style. Mm. And I imagine it was incredibly dramatic. It was like, like in a Disney film, <laughs> where they throw themselves on the bed. Well, I like to think that what she did was she stared at him, like, dead in the eyes, and then dropped <laughs> to the floor while still staring at him. <laughs> With a fan in her hand, yeah. like, fanning herself. And then only, Before she drops down. Yeah, she closed her eyes after she'd hit the floor, like... <laughs> I know this is fake, you know this is fake, but there you go. Can you remember that I'm a celebrity, get me out of here? Was that Gillian McKeith where she did that fainting thing? And um, it was all reported on the... Was that the one who used to call herself Dr. Gillian McKeith and then it turned out she didn't have any kind of medical training? No, she she used to like... People's poo. poo, Yeah, used to rifle through people's poo. Essentially, that was an untrained randomer asking people to put their poos in Tupperware so she could have a look, and she didn't only get away with it. She got a TV series mm. based on that. It just proves, if you say something, like, with confidence, mm. like, and I always think this as well, like, with CVs and stuff, like, how does anyone know that you've actually done all of that stuff? Uh, they rely on honesty. The things that don't get checked are probably quite a lot. Mm. Especially for entry-level positions. Well, I'm saying, like, so I've hired people left, right and centre, and I've never asked to see a GCSE certificate or a, or an A-level certificate. You, you really should. Um, yes. But, yeah, so she she fainted. But it didn't really help because, you know, the daddies had decided, so this was happening. And on the 22nd of November, 1682, George, Louisa and Sophia Dorothea married in the midst of a massive thunderstorm. An ill omen, perhaps? Mm. Yeah. The one concession Sophia Dorothea managed to get was that George had to ditch his mistress. Unfortunately, her sister Clara, the mistress to the elder Ernest, if you're keeping this straight in your head, yeah, she was not pleased about this and decided that she would do all she could to make Sophia Dorothea's new life at court as unwelcoming as possible. But initially, Sophia, Dorothea, was at least able to suck it up and do her wifely duties. She gave birth to a son on October 30th, 1683, while her husband was away on a military campaign. She had to make love to her cousin. Oh, this is just rotten. You must beget the son and heir. The couple managed to get pregnant again with the necessary spare, because it's got to be heir and a spare. But Mm. even when it turned out to be a girl, so, you know useless in terms of um, <laughs> continuing the uh, line of succession um, George Louis 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 could not bring himself to try again as far as he was concerned he got married he produced an heir so the whole wife thing pretty much done oh is I've it just they, none of them wanted to do it no they just kind of they yeah. did it well he probably... did it for the money and she did it because she didn't have a choice and as soon as they were able to go right can we just live estranged now? Um, I bet they didn't even look at each other, did they? No. I, 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 I mean, I'm, t- I'm, I'm talking like you, were, like you were there. Did they, Joe? Did they look at each other? They had sex through a sheet. I, <laughs> there, was, there was no love in that marriage at all. An ignored 22-year-old Sophia Dorothea, she was feeling neglected, when a young man she had played with as a child in cell by the name of Philip Koenigsmark suddenly turned up in Hanover. Another fantastic name. He was Swedish. He was keen on adventure, and he believed that Ernest's armies, which were constantly at war on behalf of the Holy Roman Empire, could provide him with the adventure he sought. He was only a year older than Sophia Dorothea, rather than the six years her husband was. He was a Swedish count, with flowing locks and a handsome face. 
And unlike her husband, George, Philip was the life and soul of any party he attended. Oh, he sounds dreamy. He was a Lothario. He was a raconteur. He was the kind of guy who just, you know, casually stride up to a piano and play a little ditty and then just walk <sighs> off. Everyone loved him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was suave. He also had a reputation as a bit of a bad boy, especially after his brother was implicated in the murder of an English MP via blunderbuss. Via what? Blunderbuss. What does this mean? A blunderbuss was an old school (laughs) firearm, essentially, a bit like a rifle with like a fluted end, and you just shoved random crap in it and just fired it out. So it was a bit like like a shotgun. Cannibal. It was a bit like a shotgun. Cannibal to the face. But, um, yeah, so basically, Koenigsmark and his brother were visiting England, and a British MP got murdered. And it just so happened that his brother had been sweet on this MP's wife. Uh, so okay. he'd hired three men to go and lean into his carriage with a goddamn blunderbuss and shoot him when a pistol would have done. Because this would have made him from a, an MP, a member of parliament for the, the, you know, the British realm, into jam. And it seems overkill. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, that was that was definitely there was no coming back from that. Yeah, but after after the affair, even though Philip himself had not been involved in any way, it gave him an air of danger, and his brother got away with it because he was rich enough that of course he, he was did. Acquitted. The other three guys that he paid to do it hung, but he he was told to leave. Yeah, England. because they were they were they were poor, and they probably did it because they needed some money, yeah. and it's easier to make an example of poor people than it is. And his his punishment, the, the guy who sort of masterminded it, was you've got to leave England and you're not allowed to come back. And he went, oh, no. Oh, well. To be fair, I'm waiting for that to happen to me. <laughs> Sorry, you're not coming back to England. You've been Exile. banned. Yeah. But the entire thing was like, you're, you're banished. It's like, I had the boat tickets already. Bye. <laughs> you're not banishing me. I'm leaving at the end of my holiday. Banished. <laughs> no, I didn't plan on coming back. It's very wet here and it smells. <laughs> <laughs> the Thames is full of rotting corpses. But, We're done here and shit. But Philip, while he was in in close proximity, let's say, to Sophia Dorothea, he could see that she was lonely. She was needing a friend, and they quickly became quite close confidants. Lovers. Not no no no, just confidants because he he liked having the ear of what was ostensibly you know uh, quite a powerful person at court. And she liked the air of danger of speaking to this rogue while she was married. And it may have been nothing more than a bit of innocent flirting at first, but Clara, Mm. Ernest's mistress, saw it as an opportunity to punish Sophia Dorothea for replacing her sister at court. Step one in her plan was to seduce the young Count herself. And unlike Sophia Dorothea, who had to remain faithful to her husband, Clara was free to use her sexuality as a weapon. And she took Koenigsmark to bed as a means of establishing her dominance over Sophia Dorothea. What a cow. What a cow. It was, I see you've made a friend there. Be a shame if someone slept with it. <laughs> <Ba-bow>. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Weirdly, they called Clara the blunderbuss. <laughs> okay, right, okay. They didn't, but it would have been good. That um, would have been good. Step two was to find a new mistress for George, Louise, 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 who she could control. These steps would rob Sophia Dorothea of both her only ally at court in Philip and any influence she may still have had over her husband. The woman she chose was called Melusin, and she was introduced to George Louise in 1690. Melusin was a tall, thin woman who was nicknamed the Maypole. <laughs> Do I dare ask why? Because she was very tall and thin. Oh, okay. Uh, was definitely... <laughs> That's not where my mind went, okay. ...over a foot taller than the short and portly George Lewis. But the two quickly became inseparable, because apparently, opposites attract. Well, yeah. And ironically, as she saw another woman moving in on her husband, Sophia Dorothea turned to Clara for support, reasoning that Clara was the perfect person to help her navigate the court intrigues, as she'd never experienced them at home, because, you know... Sophia Dorothea's parents just loved each other and were faithful and didn't have mistresses and affairs and court intrigues. It's all so messy, isn't it? Well, it's it's messy there, but Sophia Dorothea has no defences to this because she's never been taught how to negotiate these kinds of things because it was just, 
oh yeah, you live in a lovely place with lovely people and everyone's just looking out for everyone else and it's it's great. And now now we're in mind game yeah. territory. Yeah, she's she's gone straight into like the, the, the dragon's den and she's she's not got her five year, you know, projected forecast. She's not coping. No. She's getting ripped apart. Whatever advice might have been given, Sophia decided in the end the best thing to do would be to directly confront her husband about his new friend. <laughs> the confrontation quickly turned into an argument, and George Louis, or Louis, or Louis Louis Louise, responded to being called out as an adulterer, which he clearly was, by attacking the mother of his two children and trying to strangle her to death. Oh, what a knob. Luckily... There are a lot of servants um, in court, so they were able to drag him off. Clara must have felt at this point that she had utterly destroyed her rival. A rival who didn't realise that she was a rival. So it felt like she was playing an unfair game, but there you go. And anyway, things quickly changed. Firstly, Koenigsmark quickly grew tired of Clara and sought a way to escape her clutches. Eventually, he was so desperate, he elected to go to battle rather than to risk sleeping with her again. (laughs) <laughs> that's extreme well th- there was a, a quite an age gap um, so he he had the oh I bedded an older woman and he thought it'd just be a one night thing and she sort of pointed out you realise I'm the mistress of um, Ernest and he's the one who pays you um, and if I told him that you'd slept with me he'd be very upset because he's quite protective of me so um, you're going to come back here tomorrow night aren't you and it was only uh... at that point he realised he, he was a bit screwed both literally and figuratively. <laughs> when he eventually returned from war, Philip Koenigsmark, he just ignored her. Just like, nope. Uh, and focused more and more on spending time with Sophia Dorothea. Probably feeling safer now that her husband was preoccupied with his new lover. You know how I said she was known as the, the Maypole? Yeah. She had another nickname. Go on. The Scarecrow. <laughs> Why? Because she was tall and thin and gangly. <laughs> they all come from the same root. It's just People came up with a lot of nicknames for this woman. Uh, the two became closer and closer until eventually Sophia consented to Count Philip Koenigsmark writing to her when away on duty, which is a big step for her. Mm-hmm. Today, only the letters from Koenigsmark remain. However, they make two things abundantly clear. One, the two quickly became lovers. And two... Koenigsmark was probably the first emo ever to exist. I love this. Go on. As an example from his letter. I have reached the end, and the only thing which can save me is a few lines written in your own incomparable hand. I hope you have the charity not to deny me this favour, as it is you who are the cause of my suffering. (laughs) Only you can soothe the deadly pain I feel at being away from you. I will end here. Begging you to think of me sometimes and believe me your slave. Then presses play to Marilyn Manson. <laughs> he was passionate. I'll give him that, but a bit much. The entire affair was exactly what you'd expect with a guy like that and a, a woman who had never actually experienced a proper relationship. Each constantly sought reassurance from the other that they weren't cheating and would often accuse the other of being unfaithful or of being deliberately hurtful. They broke up and made up and broke up and made up quite a lot. But whenever Koenigsmark was back in Hanover, they would find opportunities to secretly get together for stolen nights of passion. Mm. It was it's a... like Love Island. <laughs> Is that Not what... that I've ever watched. I've never watched it. I just assume. I'm not sure that's what either happens. of us can... Uh talk to Love Island and its contents because I haven't watched it either. I, I just no. assumed it was softcore porn. For it's just a lot of pretty people that are just naked half the time having it off with everybody else. So Good for them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but most of them are thick as shit. Well, do you know what? But they look amazing in a hot pant, so in, it's fine. In a D&D kind of way, what they did was they put all of the stats into physique and charisma. And I can't blame them for that. They're now playing to those, um, you know, obvious advantages they have and probably making quite a bit of money out of it. So you go, you sexy, thick people. You do you. 
You've probably got a lot more money than me, so honestly, who's the thick one? <laughs> yeah, they're um, oh, beautiful people always get more bastards. Yeah. So maybe there is a point to it. Yeah. Back to Sophia and Philip, I think. Yes. It was a whirlwind romance that lasted only around two years, from 1692 to 1694. We know that 1692 was likely the time that their friendship became intimate, as Königsmark changed the seal he used to secure the letters. From a flaming heart on an altar with the motto, Nothing impure can set me on fire. <laughs> okay. To two hearts, one inside the other, with the motto, Thus might yours be inside mine. Oi, oi. He also took to signing off his letters. Farewell, my beloved brunette. I, <laughs> I kiss your knees. Saucy. <laughs> well, they've gone above. They've gone above the ankle, haven't they? So this is very raunchy. Well, in the Holy Roman Empire, the knee was the most erogenous part of the body. But why? Probably. <laughs> Or maybe in Sweden. I will have to ask. We have Swedish listeners. Um, I've never looked at someone and been like, oh, God, their knee. If anyone from Sweden can, can write to us at consistentlyeccentric at gmail.com. With pictures of their knees. No, not with pictures. That, is the knee considered a particularly erogenous zone for Swedish people? It'd be good to know. Um, <clears throat> at times when he felt Sophia might be going off him, his emo side would come to the fore, old Philip. He once wrote to inform her that he had adopted a pet bear and was training it specifically to rip his heart cleanly from his body just in case she should ever decide to reject him. That is so dramatic. Isn't that is my chemical romance stuff right there. <laughs> I, have, I have adopted a bear and its only task is to kill me in the most dramatic way possible. Are you going to say that to M? Like, if you ever leave me, I've got this bear in the in the shed. I can't and... afford a bear. If if you ever leave me, I've got this badger that I've trained to bite off one of my You've toes. Tra- train the kids to do it. <laughs> to what? To commit? To kill their own patricide. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Brutal. Sorry, my, that's where my mind goes. But no, don't do that. Don't get a bear. I'm not going to. Good. But we'll get back to our lovers who did have a bear. I don't know what happened to the bear, actually. I should have I should have found out what he did because he definitely didn't bring the bear back with him. I, did I like it end think... up at Paddington Station? <laughs> yeah, that's the secret of Paddington. He can rip your heart out. One yeah. clean motion. In the summer of 1694, things reached ahead. And George Luis confronted Sophia about her rumoured affair with the Swedish count. This was in spite of having already fathered a child with his own mistress the year before. So he already had a bastard child running around and he had the brass neck to go up to his wife and go, are you playing away? (laughs) There's a lot of guilt going on here, isn't there? And anxiety and um, blaming people for uh, basically things that they're doing themselves. It's almost like if you try and marry people off just based purely on cold rationality and try and ignore everyone's emotions, shit goes south quite quickly. Because in the perfect world, George would have married Melison, Sophia Dorothea would have married Philip. Everyone would be happy. And they'd probably be, Mm. you know, exchanging Christmas cards. It'd be lovely. Yeah, with nice wax stamp seals. Yeah, showing, you know, a cock between two holly bushes for half an hour. I don't know. But, yeah, they ended up um, getting in an argument again about their various infidelities. And as is, you know, standard for George Luis at this point, uh, he tried to strangle his wife to death. When he was prevented from doing so by the servants, he instead vowed to seek a separation. And Sophia Dorothea probably couldn't believe her look when she heard that. All she had to do was consent to the separation and she would be free to be with Königsmark, who had established himself in Dresden in preparation for their running away together and would be able to support both of them financially as he'd just come into some money, as rich people tend to. Yeah, it's never the poor, is it? No. But her father and uncle had just succeeded in having Hanover made the ninth electorate. And they decided that, odd attempted murder aside, they could not risk the scandal of a divorce. George Luis was convinced to not divorce Sophia 
and was told to just grin and bear it for the sake of family. <laughs> you, might, you might get strangled again, but it's fine. Uh, you know, put on a happy Keep, face. Keeping up appearances and all that. If there are marks, just wear a cravat. They're jaunty. You'll be fine. <laughs> this is like... This is so... Like, this is just abuse. Yeah, yeah. Just this put is not with good. the abuse so that we can continue to have power. Yeah, our, with people? our grasping for power is worth way more than your fragile little neck. <laughs> and mind. Well, unsurprisingly, she decided she'd had enough uh, and that it was finally time to run away with her handsome count. They began plotting their escape. Unfortunately for the couple, Clara got wind of what was happening and reasoned that if she was the one to foil their plans, then her influence over the newly minted Elector of Hanover, Ernest, would be strengthened. On the evening of July 11th, 1694, Koenigsmark received a letter from Sophia <clears throat> asking him to sneak into her rooms at 11pm sharp. Don't be late. He did so in disguise, only to find that Sophia Dorothea had no idea who had written the letter. She only knew it wasn't her. Amazingly, Koenigsmark didn't immediately sneak away and they actually spent an hour or so discussing their plans. The Count insisted that they leave immediately, but Sophia Dorothea insisted that they could wait one more day so that she could say goodbye to her children, because she was under no illusions that George Louise would be petty enough to use them as a weapon against her. That's a big move, isn't it? Just leaving your kids. But she was at least, she was insistent she would get to say goodbye. So rather than go out the window at that moment and run, she said, look, one more night, Okay. And Koenigsmark reluctantly agreed, kissed Sophia gently on her knees, and <laughs> snuck back into the dark hallway. It was there that he was confronted by Clara and some guards. Clara was supposed to have the Count arrested, but in the heat of the moment, she decided she wanted Sophia Dorothea to experience even greater pain, and told the four men to kill him. Unarmed, the Count stood no chance. Afterwards... This is... Br- oh, mate, I don't like this woman. Yeah. After the murder, probably realising how badly she'd messed up, Clara had the body disposed of in the river and had the guards clean the blood from the stones. By morning, there was no trace of what had happened. Now, with no evidence... That's extreme, man. With no actual evidence, the above statements can't actually be proved, but it's telling that at least one of the guards charged with arresting the Count died a few months later in mysterious circumstances, while at least one of the others began receiving large payments from the Hanover families. Apropos of nothing. So, reading between the lines, he did. Oh, yeah, it's all a cover-up, isn't it? The next day, Sophia was left to stew. And then she was stew? placed... Stew? She'd be bloody devastated. Well, she didn't know. She just knew that Koenigsmark didn't turn up the next day. So they didn't tell her oh, anything. They just left her. Okay, I thought it was done in front of her. Okay. Oh, no, no. She had no, no idea what had just happened in the hallway. Then... The following day, after a day of stewing, she was placed under house arrest. When she was finally informed that she was being charged with leaving her husband, they also told her that her lover was dead. It was a calculated move to try and force her to accept the offer that she return to George as a subservient and quiet wife who wouldn't cause any more scandal. So basically, they tried to break her. Arseholes, man. Well, her response was, it was pretty badass, to be honest. I'll give it you verbatim. Yes, please. If what I am accused of is true, then I am unworthy of his bed. And if the accusation is false, he is unworthy of me. Boom. Sophia probably reasoned that she could still get a divorce and try to piece together a new life. After all, she was only 28 at this point. Oh my God, all of this has happened that she's only 28. She's younger than us. She was sent under house arrest to a remote country estate called Alden to await her fate. And on the 28th of December, 1694, her divorce from George Louise was finished. It was finalised. It was done. Crossed the T's, dotted the I's. Ink's dry. She is a free woman. She is free. Good. Although, (laughs) Uh. no, she's not free. No! (laughs) Although she was free of her husband, it did not mean she was freed from house arrest. In fact, she was never freed from Alden for the rest of her life. She also never saw her children or her father again, living in the tiny hamlet for 32 long and lonely years before she finally died in November 
17 That's even worse than being, like, bumped off. And she, she constantly thought, she constantly thought, eventually they're going to let me get on with my life. Eventually they're going to let me see my kids. And she just slowly was broken down. She only died a few years after her mother because her mother was the only person who was allowed to visit her. Do you think her children just didn't... Did they know that she was there? Oh, yeah, they knew. They also knew that they weren't they allowed just... to visit. Her... Oh, but then wouldn't they end up resenting their dad? Like, you totally would. Yeah, they did, but there was nothing they could do. And there are heartbreaking stories, like, where she knew her daughter was um, travelling to see, you know, Daddy Dearest, George, Louis, Louis, and they were passing quite close to Alden, and she would dress up in her finery fully expecting that her daughter would drop in and she never did that's heartbreaking man oh it really was men are arseholes aren't they like even up until victorian times like if you just wanted to get rid of your wife just like send her to a bloody institution yeah well this was this was worse in a way because she she knew there was this growing realization that she was never going to be allowed to leave and she was allowed to go into the little village and she was allowed to ride a certain distance but that was it she like had these she was always being um, chaperoned by soldiers. Oh, I feel really sorry for her. While she was busy being a literal princess in a tower, uh, her former husband, George Louis Louis Louis, not only became Elector of Hanover, but also by virtue of the fact that his mother was the niece of Charles Stuart. Yeah. Her preposterously, and thanks to the many miscarriages of Queen Anne, inherited the British throne, becoming well, King George I of England. I'm genuinely shocked. No way. It's a British history podcast. That is insane. I know. We've been talking about the Holy Roman Empire all this time. Just to drop that. Mic drop, boom. So I'm, actually, I'm actually sitting here with my mouth open right now. <laughs> so that's what King George was up to before he became uh, King of England. And if you're wondering why King George didn't just have his ex-wife quietly murdered rather than paying for upkeep for over 30, uh, over 30 years, over three decades, you know, just an entire lifetime, mm. it may have been due to a supposed psychic who told him that he would not outlive Sophia by more than a year. And even when she died, he used his influence to ban anyone from mourning Sophia Dorothea's death, possibly hoping he could trick fate into not noticing that the year clock had started. Either way, it didn't work, and George I died in the June of 1726, only seven months after his ex-wife. So that is the story of Sophia Dorothea, a woman who was married to a king of England, a mother to a king of England, yet never became queen. And I'm pretty sure that's the second nearly queen I've covered on this podcast. I'm genuinely... get the raw end of the deal shocked that is insane mm. oh my god and actually the uh the psychic or whoever was mm. right he did die mm. within and you know how we're talking months. about in- incestuous um relationships yeah kind of makes king george the third make a lot more sense <laughs> yeah well, his grandparents uh, george... were first cousins <laughs> yeah 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 the man is a king george and all that mm. it's um yeah, I mean, the, 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 the Georgians and the Hanoverians were, were renowned for bloody having really awful relationships with their parents and stuff. So it's obviously stemmed from here. It was really toxic. Oh. They hated their <clears throat> spawn and they didn't respect each other. They didn't respect women. They didn't... Yeah. And it's, it's, all, it's all from there. Yeah, oh, the, my God, the, I didn't know that. The starting of it was so good. starting. Uh, and the main source we used was The Imprisoned Princess by Catherine Curzon. And I read a review of it when I was thinking about which one to buy to get the the background on this, and somebody complained that Catherine Curzon writes her books with too many exclamation marks and it's too conversational. So I immediately bought it, and it is just so readable. It's like um, gossip columns at times. Have you counted the exclamation marks? Copious amounts. But do you know what? Every single Many. one of them, as far as I was concerned, was justified. And the idea of doing it in a more gossipy sort of matter-of-fact way, sort of he said, she said, it's perfect for the catty times that this took place in because it was all scandal and it was all rumour and it was all, well, haven't you heard about what he's been up to? 
And it was all, you know, you never actually say something to someone's face. You kind of... And the way that that book is written, potentially, could have a wider audience as well. Because even now, people love a bit of gossip. So if you're reading it as, as like, almost gossip columns, then actually it's probably going to get more people involved. Good for you. Do you know what? Not every history book has to be stuffy, and not every history book has to have 36 appendices. Sometimes you just want the, the meat and bones of the story and you don't want all the rest. I agree. And that is what I love about this uh, podcast is because uh, it just, it, it takes, okay, so you do all the research and then you, you give it out to the, to the punters in a really interesting and informative way. And I am genuinely aghast from what you've just told me now. In this podcast. I think what I'm going to have to do beforehand, though, is I'm going to have to say, look, before you listen to it, can you please get up um, the family tree of the Georgian kings of England and just have it on your screen as you listen, (laughs) just so you can keep straight about who was involved with who. I think that's fair. Yeah. But (laughs) then a a lot of the the topics that I cover on, on my podcast, I've always got something in front of me mm-hmm. as a reference point because everyone has got the same name oh, and it's God, all very it? interlinked and interbred and um yeah you just and even if if like you might be uh, crowned something completely different to what your actual name is oh yeah i just found out that caligula's name wasn't caligula well i didn't know that until yeah. you just told me that so queen victoria wasn't queen victoria well she was but that was that's not her name what's her name is Alexandrina? No, somewhere I had heard that. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify, and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you, lucky lot. See you next week.